Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.37, Missy of Edinburgh, Mother-in-Law of the Balkans. Last time, we took Missy through the war years, seeing how she stepped up to help her country while she faced the full force of the Central Powers. With much of the land being occupied by the Germans and Austro-Hungarians, Missy fought against those in the country that favoured capitulation. After the war ended, she helped Romania win at the peace negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference, uniting the provinces of Wallachia, Moldavia and Transylvania for the first time in centuries, to realise the dream of Greater Romania. Today, we'll see her be finally crowned as Queen, consolidate her influence, and attempt to marry her children advantageously around the surviving monarchies of Europe. But before we get going, I'd like to let you know about some extra content that will be coming your way. As you all know, I'm a big fan of Russian history, and really enjoyed our recent miniseries on Ella and Alex. Well, my old employers, Bloomsbury, have a new historical fiction book out called Tsarina, which is about the life of Tsarina at Catherine I. It's called Tsarina, and I will be talking to the author Ellen Epstein in a chat episode next week. It was a great discussion, and I think you'll really enjoy both it and the book, so keep your eyes peeled for that. I'd also like to thank my Patreon supporters that keep the show going, especially my latest patrons, Skip, Amara, Jane, Amanda and Carrie. Your support is so appreciated. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Missy returned from Paris a hero. 
Although her country faced some difficult months in 1919, including war with the short-lived Hungarian Soviet Republic, Romania emerged from the post-war conferences a changed nation. She had achieved almost all of her pre-war aims, and was now firmly established as their respected regional power. But while Missy could bask in her international success, within her own family there was considerable upheaval. In the last episode, we saw her son Prince Carol briefly marry a commoner, Zizi Lambrino, before he was forced to abandon her due to the remaining constitution's ban on the heir marrying someone who wasn't a foreign princess. If Missy had hoped that time may have lessened Carol's attachment to Zizi, though, she was to be disappointed. While their marriage had been annulled, the couple had stayed together, and now Carol was demanding that he be able to abdicate his position as heir so that he would be free to marry his bae. Missy, as is sadly quite typical in such predicaments, blamed Zizi for her son's actions. But really, this was all him, and he was quite prone to such spectacular histrionics. For example, when Missy asked her son to participate in their grand triumphal entrance back into Bucharest, he tried to throw himself off his horse. Then, a few months later, when he was ordered to go on a diplomatic mission to the Far East, he shot himself in the leg. In the end, they could not stop Carol from unilaterally renouncing his succession rights and marrying Zizi Lambrino. But Missy wasn't about to give in that easy. She decided that if she could just keep them apart, then he would eventually just get bored of her. So Carol was dispatched to an army camp in northern Transylvania, while Zizi had to stay in Bucharest. Carol wrote letter after pleading letter to his mother, begging him to be allowed to reunite with Zizi. But Missy was firm, and eventually, she got her wish. Shortly after Zizi gave birth to their first child, Carol abandoned her, and requested readmittance to the line of succession. Just to make sure that he didn't change his mind again, Missy then sent him off on an eight-month world tour. You know, for safety. But just when God opened that window, he closed two doors. For years, Missy had depended on Barbo Sturbe and Joe Boyle for their sage advice, problem-solving, and a bit of extramarital action. Well, now both men decided that their jobs were done. Missy knew what she was doing now, and their presence by her side was doing too much damage to her reputation. Missy was now unassailed as the most powerful and respected woman in the region. But the issue of her children's marriages, or lack thereof, was a great concern. But of course, it also presented a great opportunity. Even in the 20th century, dynastic marriages still had diplomatic value. So her children were important chips for her to play. The first of her kids to enter the fray was her eldest daughter, Princess Elizabeth. She had long been a problem child. Lazy and self-centred, she was the epitome of the spoiled rich kid. Shockingly, This meant that by the age of 25, she was still single. But she did have an admirer. Now, cast your minds way back to the series on Sophia of Prussia, who was Queen of Greece, but was at that time in one of her periods of exile. Her eldest son, Prince George, had long been in love with Princess Elizabeth, for reasons passing understanding. He was a nice boy, gentlemanly and generous, quite unlike Elizabeth, but for whatever reason, he wanted to marry her. Once the engagement was arranged, Missy invited the couple to stay at Sinaya, along with George's sisters Helen and Irene. Princess Helen was the epitome of the Victorian-era princess. 
pretty, refined, and elegant. And, again, for whatever reason, she really hit it off with Prince Carol, who was, you know, none of those things. Well, actually, there was kind of a reason for Helen wanting to get out of Greece. The country was in a state of turmoil, with coups and counter-coups going on all over the place. And it seems that Helen wanted no part of it. I guess she thought that Carol, despite his faults, was better than that. Missy and Helen's father, King Constantine, were in favour of the match, but Queen Sophia was adamantly opposed. She knew what Prince Carol was like, and knew that he would not make her daughter happy. Helen later wrote, quote, My mother was so upset, chiefly because of differences of upbringing and background. But I insisted, and for some time my mother tried pleading with me and using every argument to induce caution. I little realised then how true were her warning words. Had I listened, I would have been spared years of misery. The weddings took place within a week of each other in Bucharest and Athens. Missy was delighted with both occasions, but Queen Sophia was not the only one who viewed them negatively. This dual marriage alliance seemed to bind Romania to a Greek dynasty that had been hounded off its throne by the British and French only a few years before. Missy was not insensible to their objections, but didn't much care. She wrote to her friend, quote, I know that these marriages are looked upon as unfortunate by some, but little countries cannot always sacrifice themselves to the frowns and smiles of their big cousins. They must live their own lives and work out their own fate. These were big words, but it was clear that Missy's greatest joy was simply getting her two most troublesome children married to suitable spouses. She wrote to her son shortly before the wedding, quote, I fought a mighty battle for you to put you back on the straight road. Now it lies before you to walk straight upon it. And for a while, Carol and Helen were happy. The Romanian court was a far more stable and sophisticated one than the one in Athens, and they quickly set up home in a charming chalet near the Cotraceni Palace. Helen quickly became pregnant, and after coming through a difficult labour, gave birth to a son, Prince Michael, named after the medieval prince that had first united Romania centuries before. But then, very quickly, it all fell apart. In 1922, Constantine and Sophia were once again hounded out of Greece, and then two years later, the monarchy was abolished altogether. Helen was distraught and did everything she could to comfort her mother and take care of her relations. But Carol hated her Greek relatives, a problem only exacerbated when she insisted on hosting them in Romania. As Sophia had predicted, Carol quickly tired of his refined wife and sought more exciting sexual companions elsewhere. He quickly gained a reputation for being one of Europe's most inveterate womanizers, much the frustration of both his wife and mother. Undeterred by this, Missy continued in her matchmaking, for there was another Balkan ruler wanting for a wife. The man in question was King Alexander of... Well, at this point, he was king of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, but a few years after this, his realm was renamed Yugoslavia, so for ease, that's what I'll call him. He was not an especially good-looking man, but he was fiercely intelligent and was determined that his country should not suffer the horrors that it had faced in World War I again. He needed regional allies. He had already signed an alliance with Czechoslovakia, as had Romania, 
so it seemed logical to complete this little entente. The logical candidate for Alexander's hand was Mignon. She was the polar opposite of her elder siblings. Where they were selfish, she was selfless. Where they were proud and arrogant, she was kind and easygoing. Missy was actually not entirely in favour of the match. She couldn't understand what Alexander saw in her rather pudgy and plain daughter. But Mignon was keen, and you could not argue with the advantages of the match. They were married in 1922, and the following year Mignon gave birth to a son and heir called Peter. The strategic nature of these marriages won Missy even greater acclaim. She was now being hailed abroad as the mother-in-law of the Balkans, placed at the centre of a regional alliance structure that threatened to monopolise all power in the region. She had learned to use her charm and personality to aggrandise her position, a trait recognised by British writer Beverly Nichols, who wrote that she was, quote, a very remarkable woman. Of all the queens in Europe, she is the only one who really dramatised her position. She knows exactly how to present herself to the public imagination, realising, as she does, that in these days, the throne has to borrow a great deal of thunder from the stage if it is to keep its position, and that showmanship is half the craft of sovereignty. All her gestures are studied, sometimes daring, sometimes startlingly unconventional, but they remain the gestures of a queen. But while she undoubtedly had many admirers, there were those that were growing rather tired of her theatricality. They saw her as vain and ambitious, marrying her children off to serve only her own advantage and upgrade her own standing. But while there is something to Missy being a touch in love with herself, her ability to self-market, I think, should be seen as a positive trait, not a negative one. Equally, she didn't force any of her children into marriages. She may have engineered them, but they were entered into with their full consent. All around her, monarchies were losing favour or being abolished. Yet she and Nando remained more popular than they had ever been. Which is why they decided that they would finally get a coronation. If you recall, Nando had come to the throne at a time of crisis. World War I had just started, and it wasn't seen as a priority to have a coronation. Now, with the dream of Greater Romania finally realised, it was time to do things properly. No expense was to be spared, starting with the venue. A new cathedral was built in the Transylvanian fortress city of Alba Iulia, an ancient capital of Romania, and the place where the last king of a united Romania, Michael the Brave, had been crowned. There was a problem, though. The cathedral was an orthodox one, but Nando was a Roman Catholic. The church would not permit an orthodox priest to crown a Catholic king. Missy, however, came up with an elegant solution. Why not just hold the ceremony outside the cathedral and sell the king as wanting to be crowned before all his people, not just a few invited guests? It was a genius move. Missy's vision for the event was that it should be a glorious celebration of Romania's past glories. In her words, quote, I want nothing modern that another queen might have. Let mine be all medieval. She took as her inspiration the coronation of her cousins, Nicholas and Alex, in Moscow, though connecting this to their ultimate fate seems not to have occurred to her. Splendour, not solemnity, 
would be the order of the day. While all the royal women there present were to wear gold, Missy chose for herself a gown of reddish gold, over which she hung a diamond necklace ending with a giant sapphire. The highlight of the ceremony saw Nando, in front of 300,000 spectators, take the crown, forged, if you remember, from captured Turkish guns onto his own head, and then crown Missy with a specially created crown. In the Byzantine style, it was made of Transylvanian gold and dotted with precious stones. Cannons fired, bells rang, and the crowd cheered. It was a moment of great significance, as it symbolised the culmination of the project of unifying Romania that had started decades before and had cost so many lives to accomplish. And at the centre of it all was Missy. The years following the coronation saw Missy able to enjoy life in a degree of calm and peace that she had not felt since the war. The years following the coronation saw Missy able to enjoy life in a degree of peace and calm that she had not felt since before the war. She was able to do more of the things that she really enjoyed. She spent her days riding her horses with anyone that could keep up with her, and writing both her own works and also for magazines. The rest of her days were dedicated to her charities and causes. Over the course of her life, Missy wrote over 30 books, many of them written in this period. These of course included her multi-volume autobiography, but also travel books and works of fiction, ranging from fairy tales to romances. Reviews both at the time and since have not been kind to Missy's fictional body of work. In 1924, in a review of her book The Voice on the Mountain, the story of a spear-wielding, horse-riding woman who derives magical power from a stricken warrior, Time magazine called it, quote, the outpourings of a gushing schoolgirl. Far more successful were her articles for foreign publications. In 1925, she received a deal to write 16 articles for the North American Newspaper Alliance. These had titles like Can a Woman Make Herself Beautiful? My Experience with Men? and the rather shocking Making Marriage Durable, in which she seems to make the case for an open marriage, writing, Fidelity does not seem to have been decreed by nature. When passion has died down in both hearts, why not, like two good friends, be forgiving and lenient? There were always people around her, from close relatives and their children to friends and admirers. Life around her was fairly informal, and everyone had a riotous good time. This, of course, attracted journalists and foreign correspondents, who wrote glowingly about Romania's queen. When she wasn't doing all of this, she was travelling. She went to the UK in 1923 to visit the grave of her old friend and paramour, Joseph Boyle, who had died a few months before. From there, she went to Belgrade for the birth of her grandson, Peter, and then had to make arrangements to ensure the safety of her eldest daughter, Elizabeth, whose husband had just been removed from the Greek throne. The following year, she went on a tour of Western Europe with her husband. This was designed as a goodwill tour, to increase the prestige of Romania and renew the monarchy's ties with the leaders of the West. This was the sort of thing that Missy loved and excelled at. They started in Paris, and she continued on where she had left off in 1919. 
The whole thing, though, almost started in disaster. Without telling her, Nando had elected to wear the uniform of the Romanian Royal Guard, which had a pointed helmet in the Prussian style. It had evidently not occurred to him this might be somewhat disrespectful to his French hosts. Knowing that if she told him to remove it, he would obstinately refuse, she instead engineered an accident, whereby a rotund servant accidentally on purpose crushed it. They were greeted off the train with a flyby by a good portion of the French Air Force, and from there went on to a great many dinners, receptions and balls. Nothing was ever dull around Missy while she was on tour. Her every move was covered by the press. She wrote in her diary, quote, I am the sort of queen Parisians understand and appreciate. There is always plenty to say and think about me. Good and bad, but nothing dull. Their next official stop was in Geneva, where Nando addressed the League of Nations, the transnational precursor to the UN that had been formed after the end of World War I. And then from there, they went on to Belgium and then Britain. This was her first state visit to the UK since becoming Queen, her visit in 1919 being an informal one. They took part in several public events, including laying a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, a banquet hosted by the Lord Mayor of London featuring a carriage parade through the city, and state dinners at Buckingham Palace and the Romanian Embassy. While the tour was a success, in that it did generate a great deal of positive publicity, it did not have the political legacy that Missy was looking for. The Great Powers were still somewhat antagonistic to Romania's alliance with Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. This was, of course, because complex alliances had been a big part of bringing the world to war in 1914, a war that, let's not forget, began in the Balkans. For Missy, this stance was illogical. She saw communism as being the greatest threat facing both Romania and the world, and this alliance protected her country from the Soviet Union. She wrote, quote, In the Bolshevik question, the whole world seems smitten with blindness. It even makes me occasionally regret being a woman, that I have not the legal right to put myself at the head of a movement to bring about a common understanding of all civilised countries to protect their civilization. But it would not be communism that would next upset Missy's world, but her son, Carol. His marriage had been a terrible idea from the start, and after he had fathered a son with his wife Elizabeth, Carol lost all interest in her. Instead, he went womanising all over the Romanian court, but especially with a woman called Yelena Lupescu, a social climbing divorcee who managed to win the attention of Carol through sheer force of her determination and beauty. She was forward, modern and desirable, quite unlike Carol's wife in many ways. He was utterly entranced by her. They had met in 1923 and engaged in a non-too-subtle affair, and though the Romanian press was banned from reporting it, their relationship was common knowledge. Missy was furious with her son, on one occasion writing that she, quote, had to say rather terrible things, was not too hard and merciless, but tried to make him see how he is bringing misfortune down upon us all. His father went even further, threatening to exile Lepescu if they did not stop flaunting their affair. By Christmas 1925, though, things came to a head. Carroll wrote to his wife and family, announcing that once again 
he was renouncing his title and inheritance, deserting wife and country to live abroad with his mistress. Despite all that had gone before, Missy was dumbstruck, describing it as like being, quote, struck by lightning. After overcoming her shock, her reaction turned to anger. Quote, Cold-bloodedly, lovelessly, he writes to his mother and to his wife that he is abandoning everything, that he is misunderstood, misjudged, looked down upon, and has therefore decided to give up everything and disappear. Before announcing anything to the country, Missy tried to reason with her son, writing, quote, What can I say to you, Carol, my boy? What can a mother say to a son who is stabbing her in the heart for a second time? You have everything. A country that needs you. A grand future to make yours. A lovely home. A beautiful and good wife. An adorable child. Parents who love you. Whose right hand you ought to have been. Parents who are going towards old age. Who have given their lives to a mission you were to have completed. All of this you give up. Tear to pieces. Throw away. As though it were so much rubbish. And for what? Love, Carol, does not mean the blind giving in to all a man wants. What I cannot understand is what is your conception of life? What is your conception of duty? What is your idea of love? Is love for you simply indulgence? Simply a letting yourself go to your animal appetites till you are sick of the one who satisfies you, and then you pass on? Is there no fidelity in your code? No restraint? Nothing? Nothing at all? No ideal, no vision, no dream of the future. Only lust, only giving way to each passion which flits across your path. Then, my boy, you are right to go. Then we cannot understand one another, for we speak different languages. Then indeed you are not worthy of standing above others, of being chosen as a leader for a people who need a shepherd, who need one capable of sacrifice, one who will love them enough to overcome himself for their sakes. If you recognise no duty, no fidelity, no obligation, then you are indeed unworthy of carrying on the torch. Elizabeth offered to go with him personally to reason, but by now Nando had had enough. He said to her, quote, You are going through this for the first time. For us, it is the second time. Before, he escaped the death sentence only because of the Queen's intervention. Now, Nobody must intervene. On the 31st of December, the king met with the Crown Council, presenting his son's letter of abdication. It was agreed that on Nando's death, the throne would pass to Carol's son, Prince Michael, who at that point was just four years old. It was also agreed that, should Michael not be of age at the time of his accession, a three-man regency council would take over, made up of Nando's second son, Prince Nicholas, the Patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. It was then ratified by Parliament a few days later. The scandal of Carol's abandonment of his wife and country shook the country, but not all the press was united against him. Many postulated what could have brought the Crown Prince to make a decision like this, and many pointed the finger at the Queen. They accused her and Barbo Sturbe of forcing her son out of the country. They accused Sturbe of being a kind of Romanian Rasputin, the evil and malign spectre behind the throne who had forced Carol out so he could accumulate more power for himself and his lover, Queen Missy.
Carol actually came to his mother's defence, saying that the decision was all his, and motivated only by love for his mistress. But the damage done to the dynasty could not be undone, even by his denials. Nando's son's actions only worsened the decline in his own health. At 60 years old, the king was not an old man, but stresses and disease were taking their toll. Missy was very concerned about his health, but was assured by his doctors that he wasn't in any immediate danger. Therefore, she felt able to go on a tour of the United States, something that she had been looking forward to for a long time. Her wartime exploits had earned her a popular following in the US, and she hoped to build her and her country's prestige with this visit, and hopefully come back with some investment in her country. She trailed by ship to New York, with her younger children Nikki and Yelena. The Big Apple greeted her with a ticker tape parade from Battery Park to City Hall, with the route lined by hundreds of police and thousands of spectators, eager to see one of Europe's most celebrated royals. I've put some Pathé footage of the parade in the show notes for you to watch. For someone who had just endured a great deal of negative press, this adulation was heady stuff for Missy. Quote, I was not prepared for the American custom of throwing papers of every size, shape and description from thousands of windows of the extraordinary buildings whose tops I could barely see. The air seemed alive with fluttering wings, as though swarms of birds had been let loose in the streets. Marie! Marie! I heard my name cried out by thousands of voices. It was all very bewildering, very exciting and exceedingly flattering. While in New York, she gave numerous interviews and welcomed every question put to her, even the difficult ones, such as those criticising the treatment of Jews in Romania and the Prince Carol scandal. For a press used to visiting royals being coy and prim, Missy's candour was a breath of fresh air. From there, she travelled to Washington, D.C., where she met President Calvin Coolidge and his wife Grace. Coolidge's White House was rather stiff and proper, and protocol was rigidly adhered to. First, Missy went to the White House to be introduced to the President, at which point she then had to leave and go to the Romanian Embassy, where the President made a reciprocal visit. Missy wrote, quote, According to the somewhat absurd custom, hardly were we back to our own legation than the President and his wife drove up to our door to pay back our call. This visit, however, ended up on a humorous note. The never-to-be-avoided photographer claimed his rights, that tyrant against which neither king nor president can stand up. The president, who had already put on his hat and coat, took them off again and patiently sat down again with a resigned face. That was Missy's version of events, at least. The Coolidge's put about an entirely different story, that Missy had ambushed them with a strategically hidden photographer, forcing him to pose for a photograph with her. His social secretary later said that Coolidge's, quote, anger and annoyance increased when he later viewed the unwelcome proof that this clever woman had outwitted him. Queen Marie is a most determined lady and was not to be outdone by a mere president of the United States. As one might expect, this made their state dinner that evening somewhat of an awkward affair, and the whole thing was raced through in less than an hour. Missy, though, still managed to shock the stiff Americans, lighting up cigarettes with Teddy Roosevelt's daughter Alice Longworth, a rather shockingly forward thing to do at the time. Missy then went back to New York, where she made more grand public appearances, giving speeches and appearing at every social event going. From there, she embarked on a cross-country tour of the US, 
with a few forays into Canada, aboard an opulent train called the Royal Romanian, described by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most beautiful and elaborate trains ever placed on rails. The trip was a royal circus, with every stop from Philadelphia and Baltimore, Toronto and Ottawa, to Minneapolis and Winnipeg, seeing crowds of local dignitaries and causes pressing for our attention and some royal stardust. Perhaps the most interesting stop on this visit was in North Dakota, where she invent- where she visited the Sioux Indians. She was greeted by the tribal chief, Red Tomahawk, famous as the man who had killed Sitting Bull. She was carried into his tent by a dozen tribal elders, and was adopted into the tribe as Winyan Kimpanki Wim, the woman who was waited for. Unfortunately, Missy was forced to cut short her trip when she received the news that her husband's condition had deteriorated. He was suffering from cancer of the intestines, and was now a shadow of his former self. With the king clearly approaching death, and the throne due to pass to a five-year-old boy, the political jockeying became vicious. Prince Carol, who was living in exile in Paris, began writing furiously to his mother, asking to be reinstated as heir. This was a non-starter for Missy, but he had his supporters. The Prime Minister, Avarescu, a man with fascist sympathies, declared his support for Carol and attempted a coup d'etat, ordering several loyal regiments into Bucharest to seize power. However, the king got wind of it and squashed the attempted uprising. Avarescu was sacked and replaced with Misty's old flame, Babu Sturbe. He was sworn in by the king from his bed, Nando being too weak to stand. Sturbe's attempt to create a unity government between the liberals and national peasants, however, failed, and he was forced to resign after only three weeks in the job. He was, in turn, replaced by Jan Bretonel for his fifth term as Prime Minister. However, Bretonel would be Nando's final Prime Minister, as less than a month later, he lost his battle with cancer and died. Missy had been by his side the whole time, taking to sleeping on a sofa in his chambers so that they were never truly apart. On the night of the 19th of July, he became restless and Missy took him in her arms. A nurse rushed to find a priest to give the last rites, but the end came too quickly. In Missy's words, quote, His head fell against my shoulders. His already cold hands became limp, his face quite small. It was over. He was no more tired, but at rest. Missy and Nando's relationship is not the kind of thing that one will find in fairy tales or romances. Their relationship wasn't really bound by love, certainly not by monogamy. They had been brought together by outside forces and had a difficult early relationship. But while they may never have been lovers, they were partners in every sense of the word. She was always there for him and respected all that he had done for his adopted country. He, a Roman Catholic, had agreed for his children to be raised Orthodox for Romania, and for that he was denied communion for many years. He, a German, had followed the will of his people to war against his homeland, and for that he was ostracised and thrown out of his own family. And he, a father who had been forced to exile his eldest son for his country, had instead to pass the throne to his five-year-old grandson. Missy had been his rock, his encourager, and his cheerleader. For all her excesses and self-promotion, he relied on his wife to do the things that he could not. And for his part, he allowed Missy the space to be herself, 
and use her natural talents to help her country. Their partnership had guided Romania through war and peace. And now, it was at an end. Nando has left our story, but Missy would fight on, for her troubles were far from over. Okay, remember that next week, we have the chat episode with Ellen Epstein, and then, a week later, we will have the final chapter of Missy's remarkable story. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.